what I want to do today is spend some time in the book of Thessalonians. Obviously, um, in Mark's lesson, he covers the background material in Acts for both Philippians and Thessalonians, but I want to kind of focus in our limited time on the book of Thessalonians uh, specifically. And the reason for that is I've had a a great amount of time over the years to spend in Thessalonians. When I was doing my master's level work, I got to translate Thessalonians from Greek to English. And so having done that, I spent a great amount of time uh, dealing with the, the intricacies of Thessalonians. And I've just been so um, impacted by the example that I see from Paul in Thessalonians, specifically kind of the follow-up to what Pastor David preached on this morning, the discipleship process. Like, what do we do with people once we have brought them into faith, once we've shared the gospel with them and and we've planted a church, perhaps, as Paul did in, in Thessalonica? What do we do with these people? How do we disciple them well? How do we bring them to a mature faith that allows them then to continue to do the same ministry that we see Paul do in uh, the book of Acts. So what I want to suggest today is that Paul, where's my clicker? Here it is. Uh, Paul provides for us an example of how to disciple new believers in Christ. What we see um, in the book of Thessalonians, specifically in the first few chapters, is a clear example from Paul about how to invest your life in people so that it makes a lasting kingdom impact. The way that pa- uh, Paul pastors these people is particularly impactful on my life. You know, as evangelicals, we are very, very, and intentionally so, concerned with the process of evangelization, right? We want to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, as you heard Pastor David proclaim this morning. The important thing to remember that, though, is the the fullness of the Great Commission. Go, yes, to the nations, baptizing them, but we're supposed to make disciples of all nations. And what is making disciples look like? Well, what we see in the life of Paul is a clear example, representation of what it looks like to truly make disciples so that those disciples can then be raised up to go and do likewise. We're multiplying our influence through discipleship as we seek to make disciples of all nation. As uh, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2, all followers of Jesus are to take the message of the gospel and entrust it to others. He writes 2.1, You then, my child, speaking to Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It seems that there's a, a, a stewardship issue here with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The question we have to ask ourselves is this great treasure that we have been given by someone who was faithful to speak it into our lives before us, what are we doing with it? Are we burying it in our in the ground or are we doing something with it to grow the kingdom? Are we being good servants with what Jesus has given us? We've seen throughout our time in the book of Acts what Paul has done with the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? We're going to see it today. He's starting churches. He's going into the city centers. If there's a synagogue there, he's going in there. He's proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. If not, like in Philippi, he's finding some place to go and tell people about Jesus, whether in the marketplace or some other place. He's casting out demons. 
They will heal people as Jesus did. They are continuing fully the ministry of Jesus in the book of Acts. They're affecting economies. Some of the reading this week in Acts 16, there's a, a servant girl there who is telling fortunes. They cast out a demon from her and the people who own her are upset because they've lost income. Right Later, same thing happens. Acts 19 in Ephesus Indeed, the idolatrous community there is concerned that Paul's work is going to stop the economy of producing idols. They're affecting the economy with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, Paul is sacrificing tremendously, tremendously to earn the right to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Personally, he's giving his life. He's, he's working hard. He's laboring and toiling as we are seeing here. He's giving up everything in order to faithfully followed the, the, the call of God upon his life. He is entrusting to others what has been entrusted to him. He's being a faithful steward of the gospel, which is part of the discipleship process. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2 exhibits for us behavior that should be imitated in our quest to make disciples of all nations. Ultimately, he is following the example of Jesus. And so now we can follow Paul as he follows Christ in this regard. Um, what I want to do to begin, though, is give you a background of Thessalonians. I think it's important to understand what's going on in Thessalonica to understand why it's very important that Paul invest his life the way that he did. And we're going to begin with one of the readings that we had this, this week in our reading in Acts chapter 17, if you want to turn there with me. If I can get this on the now, I would ask that you guys would be gracious to me. I just got back from a doctoral seminar this past week, so my mind is a little fried. So, if I say something that is maybe out of left field or crazy, uh, just be gracious to me. Raise your hand, say, Jared, maybe not. And, uh, <laughs> I'll reconsider it. All right, here we go. So here's the background to the starting of the church in Thessalonica, okay? Uh, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned from, with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He is the one you've been expecting, the anointed one. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. Kind of a familiar action, right? Uh, these Jewish people kind of rising up against the the teaching of Paul and Silas. And we're going to talk about why in a minute. It's very important to understand why, specifically in Thessalonica, the Jewish people were concerned. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Wouldn't you love that to be said of you? These men that have turned the world upside down. Although, contextually, it probably means something different than I mean there. But, um, 
Would it be said of us that as a church, as Christians, that we have turned the world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar. Important point here. Saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So they were bribed in order to let these guys escape. Now, what I want to do for a second, again, because I think it's important, is discuss this question. Why were the Jews so against the ministry of Paul and Thessalonica? And so I want to do a little bit of background study for you. Um, it's important, I think, we're in the context of Bible to find some context, right? Um, as we say in seminary, context is king. We got to know the context to understand the meaning of what's going on here. So I want to give you a little bit of general background to Thessalonians. It's from a paper I wrote years ago, so hopefully it doesn't embarrass me. Um, and then I want to talk with you briefly also from a, an article by a guy named F.F. F. Bruce, who's one of the leading evangelical New Testament scholars. Anything you read by F.F. F. Bruce is going to be worth reading, okay? So, let's get some historical background to Thessalonica. By the time Paul and his companions began to write the first epistle to the Thessalonians, obviously after they started the church that we just read about in Acts 17, around 50 CE, Thessalonica was a cosmopolitan center on the Adriatic coast with significant ties to the Roman Empire. Yet this was not always the case. Now, I'm going to build here why... The, the Jews specifically are so concerned with what Paul is teaching in Thessalonica. Because if you keep reading Acts, Paul gets run out of Acts, uh, Thessalonica. Um, as you just read a minute ago, he goes to Berea. Berea is right next door to Thessalonica. The Jews there are very receptive to what's going on. But then the Jews in Thessalonica here, oh, Paul's doing the same thing in Berea. They go to Berea, run him out of Berea. He's got to go down to Athens by himself. All right? So they are very concerned with what's happening here, and there's a reason why, okay? Thessalonica was initially part of the king of Macedonia. Kingdom of Macedonia, founded sometime around 315 BCE by the king Cassander, who named the city after his wife, the half-sister of Alexander the Great. The city's location at the head of the Gulf of Thermae was ideal for a port city, thereby allowing it to become the center of port activities in Macedonia, which was beneficial then to the growing Macedonian kingdom and later to the Roman Empire. So it's uniquely situated to be a place of significance for the Roman Empire later. Thessalonica was brought into the Roman Empire in 167 BCE by virtue of the Macedonian annexation, which resulted from the end of the Third Macedonian War and the ensuing abolishment of the Macedonian monarchy. Although there was a short uprising led by Andriscus in 149 BCE, in which Macedonia was temporarily reestablished, Thessalonica from 167 onward was for all practical purposes part of the Roman Empire. Although peace was also prevalent in the time of this letter's writing, that too had not always been the case within the Roman Empire. Civil wars, power struggles loomed within the Roman territory for years, which Greece and Macedonia in particular bore much of the brunt of. And if you've read any kind of ancient history, you know that this area was wrought with wars after wars after war, right? I mean, it's just crazy the kind of bloodshed that was happening on the, the Peloponnesus, okay? Um, so yeah, from 41 to 31 CE, they were thought to have reached an end when Caesar defeated Pompey, becoming emperor. Yet, 
before he could assert his power and bend upon uh, and build upon his newly acquired empire, Caesar was assassinated. Right at two brute. Okay, Shakespearean mind. Okay. As a result, the empire was left in the hands of Mark Antony and Octavian. Am I below? Here we go. Antony, though, was not trusted as a leader by many, and because of that lack of trust, Octavian warred against Antony, ultimately defeating him at the Battle of Actium in 31 CE to assume control of the entire empire. So it's important for you to recognize here the unrest that guided the history of this section and the importance of the Pax Romana. When Caesar Augustus comes to power, as we'll see in a minute, the peace that is pervading this land is... Is new. And it's important for economic reasons, obviously. Octavian's sole ownership of the empire of Rome began to satisfy a yearning for peace that had begun to grow within the people under the rule of the empire. They had grown weary because of the years of struggle and unrest. While initially Octavian desired to place the Republic back in the hands of the Senate, the Senate insisted that Octavian remained as emperor since he maintained the loyalty of the soldiers, a trait needed to hold the empire together. Octavian accepted this position and took the name Augustus. Augustus' establishment of peace made him a savior or even a god in the eyes of many. And you can see this in Virgil's Aeneid. Uh, there's a great quote here. But next, behold the youth of form divine, Caesar himself, exalted in his line, Augustus, promised off and long foretold, sent to the realm that Saturn ruled of old, born to restore a better age of gold. So the fact that he brought peace and prosperity elevates the Roman Empire or emperor to a status of deity. Okay, Now, this is the Roman Empire, which Claudius, who is the emperor of the time of Paul's work in Thessalonica, this is the empire which Claudius inherited from Augustus by way of Caligula and the one which serves as the backdrop for Paul's encounter with the Thessalonians. Thessalonica, fitting fitting from its geographical positioning and the economy of the Roman Empire, had become in the time of Paul cosmopolitan with cultural samplings from Greece, Rome, and Israel and an economy on the rise. So Paul comes to the city, he goes to the synagogue as was his custom, And the majority of Paul's converts here were not even Jewish. They were rather pagans who turned to God from other idols, suggesting that Paul also had another place of ministry, as we see in Philippi, which Wanamaker suggests, is a commentator on Thessalonians, was a local Gentile's workshop. Paul's message, while greeted with joy by some, and here comes the important part, was otherwise rejected because of its association with a growing problem within the Roman Empire of a militant messianism that was spreading among Jewish communities. Now, it's important to recognize here that Christianity was not the only segment of Judaism that was talking about a different king, a coming king that would overthrow the Roman Empire. And it was causing disruptiveness throughout the empire. And if you know anything about the emperors at this time, the chief thing was the Pax Romana, okay? What happens was that Rome would come in and they would allow the people they conquered to keep their religion as long as that religion did not cause an uproar that would cause unrest in the kingdom. They wanted peace first. And if your religion began to call into question the authority of Rome or to become disruptive in the Roman Empire, guess what happened? Extinguished. Okay, And Claudius, in fact, recently 
right before Paul writes Thessalonians, just kicked out the Jews from Rome. You see this in uh, early Acts, in Acts 28-2. Luke writes the fact that Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome because of this militant messianism. There was an uproar and uprising going on. Claudius had had enough of it and kicked him out. In fact, this is not the first time that Claudius deals with this. There's a really great letter that he writes that F.F. Bruce Bruce, uh, features in this article. It's an old article, but it's a good one. Christianity under Claudius. It was written uh, in March 1962 in the Bulletin of the John Rylands Library. And uh, F.F. Bruce quotes Claudius writing to the Jews of Alexandria who are... uh, in a, in, a, in a have some issues with other people around them, okay? So they send some emissaries to Claudius and say, hey, can you help us? And here's what Claudius says. With regard to the question of uh, which of the two sides was responsible for the rioting and civil strife, or rather, if the truth must be told, the war against the Jews, I'm not disposed to pass definite judgment. Although your ambassadors, especially uh, Dionysius, the son of Theon, pleaded your case zealously and at length against the other side. But I do reserve irrevocable anger against those who started it again. Now I tell you plainly that if you do not desist from this destructive and obstinate animosity against one another, I shall be compelled to show you what a benevolent ruler is capable of when he is moved to righteous anger. Right? And if you know anything about the Romans... Uh, righteous anger is displayed in some really terrible, terrible ways, okay? So what is Claudius saying here? He said, listen, I don't care who started it. You guys better finish it. Because if you don't finish it and there's not peace established, I'm going to come finish it. And you don't want that to happen, okay? So that's what uh, we have going on here in uh, Thessalonica, okay? So you have this militant messianism that has caused Claudius to evacuate the Jews from Rome, and he's pressing down on anything that sounds like militant messianism. And here comes Paul, the Thessalonica. And here's what he says. Guys, you'll see later in Thessalonians, there's no peace and security in Rome. There's no pox et securitas in Rome. The only true place of peace and security is found in Jesus Christ. Rome is not going to last forever. The kingdom of God will last forever. There's a greater king. There's a a greater deity of worship than Caesar Augustus or Claudius at this time. His name is Jesus. Now, what does that sound like? Kind of sounds like the same thing those militant Jews were saying that got him kicked out of Rome. Now, here are these Jewish people in leadership positions in Thessalonica. For the first time in years, they've experienced peace. Their economy is growing. They're getting rich. They found favor, and they don't want anything to happen to jeopardize that. And so here comes this guy who is considered at this time, remember, a sect of Judaism, talking about overthrowing the king. Now, it doesn't mean that necessarily it means a future kingdom, but they don't know that. And so they hear Paul coming in here talking about this Messiah who's the true object of worship, who's going to overthrow uh, all the earthly kingdoms, establish his own kingdom. And all they can think is, oh my goodness, Claudius is going to hear about this. He's going to come in here to Thessalonica and he's going to kick us out the same way that he did the Jews from Rome. So we got to get Paul out of here before we get kicked out of here. 
And any remnant of Paul has got to be kicked out of here because we don't want any of that mess in Thessalonica. We got it, we got it made in the shade here. I don't want anything to jeopardize the prosperity that we are experiencing. Which is a side note, sounds like a very familiar battle that we are facing in America today. All right, so. Come back to our notes. This is why the Jews were so against the ministry of Paul in Thessalonica. So Paul gets kicked out of there, as I said, goes to Berea, gets kicked out of there by the same Jewish people, and then goes down to Thessalonica. And he is, uh, goes down to Athens. And he's writing now a letter he's sending back to Timothy, or through Timothy, to Thessalonica to encourage and exhort these people who he is concerned about. Because they're in the exact same environment that he just got kicked out of. And the way that he pastorally speaks into the lives of the Thessalonians is, I think, very impactful for us today. So, Paul writes Thessalonians as a letter to check on this new group of believers for whom he has great concern because of the situation they find themselves in. Now, let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and see how Paul speaks to them. I can find it. There we go. All right. Now I want you to, to think about for a second the, the very pastoral tone that Paul uses in this writing, okay? And um, think about the, the fatherly nature with which he speaks to these people. I think it's very important for us to think about. Um, there's a lot of familial ideas that Paul speaks of as is, is, is a spiritual father to these disciples. And I just want you to think about the fatherly nature with which he is encouraging these people who are in a very tough situation. Situation he just got kicked out of. Okay? So, beginning in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, and you can get more of that in Mark's lesson, As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. And honestly, why would anybody go through what Paul went through for something that was not reliable? But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. And it's important to recognize at this time in the Roman Empire, there's a lot of people going around offering new things, new philosophies, with the goal of being supported by groups of people. Um, and they were called into question because all they were doing was speaking things that would earn them money. Paul's saying, listen, I didn't do that. I didn't come to you and speak to you in order for you to support me. In fact, as he says, we labored and toiled. God is our witness. We didn't seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. This is one of my favorite verses in all the scripture. So being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, We work night and day, 
that we might not become a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you brothers for a short time, in person, not in heart, We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. When I read that, all I can think about is what an incredible transformation in Paul. This is the same guy who earlier in Acts was persecuting these Christians. And now, look at the way that he speaks to them. Look at the fatherly way that he desires to build them up and encourage them. Look at the way he wants to share his life with them. An incredible testimony. So, how does Paul teach us to disciple people in this letter to the Thessalonians. And I think it's important for us to look at his example. Why? Because his church has lasted. His significance lasted. So what he did established churches that changed the face of the world. And so if we're going to try to be disciples of all nations, I think it's important for us to recognize what Paul did. And so I want to look at a few observations from our text today that will speak into that. We'll have to move through them for the sake of time. Number one, Paul shows us that to disciple people, we must get close to them. Look at verses seven and eight. What does Paul say here? We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Anybody been around nursing mothers? How often are they separated from their children? Not very often. Why? Because newborn babies want to eat and they want to eat often. And so mom's got to be near them in order to feed them. They were gentle. They were among them like a nursing mother. So being affectionately desirous of you, they were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you become very dear to us. Now, the first thing that hits my mind when I read of this is I don't want people that close to me. (laughs) And many of you are like that because we live in a culture that values privacy and individualism. We don't, we don't like the kind of community that we see displayed here in the church. It's okay with our own family. I'm not going to invite strangers into my household to let them see what I do as a parent and, and, and live with me for a period of time. I'm not going to walk with them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I need a break from those people, right? That's not at all what we see exemplified in the life of Paul, and certainly not what we see exemplified in the work of Jesus. These people lived their lives 
together. It wasn't just a Sunday or Wednesday night kind of thing. It was an everyday kind of thing. Now, I'm not saying that our context will enable us to live life exactly like we see in the early New Testament times, but I am saying that we need to ratchet up our game if we are going to disciple people the way they are called to be discipled. I was at a conference a couple of years ago, and there was a guy there who was talking about his church planning efforts in a very tough uh, part of Atlanta. And he said, I've got to show these guys what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus in every aspect of their life. They had no example of what it meant to be a godly father. They don't even know what it means to, to lead a godly home. And so what he does is for three or four months every summer, he invites seven or eight guys to come live in his house. His children give up their rooms. They come sleep on pallets in the master bedroom with uh, their, their parents and the other leaders there sleep in their kids' beds. They come down in the morning. They have breakfast together. They go off and do their work together. They come home. And what he does is he models for them on an everyday basis for three months what it means to be a godly husband, a godly father, what it means to allow the gospel of Jesus Christ to affect every avenue of your life. And that's an exposure that just cannot happen if we only associate with the people that we lead to Christ as we are called to do once or twice a week. That also limits how many people we can disciple. Jesus did 12 and actually a, a smaller group of three and one of those 12 didn't even last, all right? So small groups, but groups that we allow to see us at every aspect of our lives to learn what it means to be godly. And that doesn't mean to be perfect, because we're not, but it means that we are godly. And when we are imperfect, we strive to get better and we confess that and ask forgiveness. Now, the danger here, and I think for many of us, the reason why we really don't let people in a, at this level is because we don't have lives that are worthy of imitating. You know, it's okay for Paul, it's okay for Jesus to say, hey, come, come live with me 24-7. I want you to see what God has done in my life. And that's not, that's not pride. That's, that's the desire to father, Right? And any of you who have kids know this, children desire to be like their parents. And you start seeing in your children the exact same behaviors that you see in yourself. Why? Because they imitate their parents. That's why God gave them to you. You're supposed to be a godly example to them so they can imitate you. And Paul's saying, I want to father you in the ministry. I'm more mature in my Christian um, giftings. I'm more mature in my Christian walk. I want to show you what it means to follow after Jesus. So come follow me as I follow Jesus fully, right? The question for us today, is our life worthy of imitating? Is our life worthy of multiplying? If we were to call someone into our lives at this level, will we be multiplying godliness or multiplying a false sense of godliness? I drive a Hyundai Sonata, and uh, a couple weeks ago I found out that the, the Hyundai company was recalling many of the Hyundai Sonatas. Because the transmission shift cable may detached, may detach from the shift lever pin, which means that gears may not match. So you throw something into a gear and all of a sudden you think you're going forward and instead you're going backwards. So I might be coming out of my um, garage, for instance, put the car in reverse, but my car thinks it's in drive. And next thing you know, my car's in my kitchen. Okay. Well, that's the problem going on here. Why? What happened? Well, somewhere along the way, the 
the factory had a mistake. And it was replicated in several Hyundai Sonatas to the point where there were several accidents caused because this mistake was made over and over again in repetition, right? Now, here's the, the thing. We don't want a Christian recall, okay? We don't want to have to say, anybody discipled under this man for the years of 2011 to 2014, please come back to the church. we got to correct some stuff, all right? So, my challenge to you is this. Number one, if you haven't been discipled, be discipled. And be discipled by someone who's worthy of speaking into your life. Secondly, if you have grown in maturity, seek to do what Paul did. Share your life with people. Win them to Jesus, yes. But then show them what the implications of the gospel are to the wholeness of your life. And let them see that in its fullness. They can follow after Jesus. Let them get close to you. Discipleship doesn't happen any other way. Secondly, Paul shows us that to disciple people, we must speak truth. We must speak truth. Look at verses 3 to 5. They didn't speak error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. And they did not speak words of flattery, nor as a pretext for greed. Part of discipling people It's telling them the truth. Now, it means telling them the truth in grace and love, but it also means speaking truth into their lives. You look at Paul's writing in Corinthians or in Galatians, right? Galatians is a tough book. From the very beginning, there's not even a Thanksgiving section like Paul normally does. All he says is, I'm so amazed that you are so quickly abandoning the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Paul had to address these people that he led to the Lord the issues that were going on in the church. It didn't do any good to say, listen, guys, hey, I really, enjoy, I really like the, the, new, the new spin you put on the gospel. It's really great. Everybody should be circumcised. That has nothing to do with my ministry to the Gentiles. Don't get circumcised. It's fine. Okay? No, what he says is there's, a, there's an issue here. I have to address it directly. In Corinthians, hey, guys, quit disputing over who you are following. It doesn't matter if you're following Apollos. It doesn't matter if you're following Peter. It doesn't matter if you're following me. The, the issue is, are you following Jesus? Quit, quit dividing over stupid stuff, right? Paul was not afraid to speak truth into their lives. Why? Because he wanted them to come to a point where they could replicate the, the Christian gospel forward. And if he didn't correct it, then we'd have a Hyundai issue on the way, right? And there'd be all these pro-circumcision um, people out there spreading the gospel in one way, and then all these, hey, we don't need circumcision thing over here, okay? There's one gospel, and we got to make sure that as it is uh, developed in the people that we are, are discipling, that it's, it's developed in the right way. And when we see kind of error or, or mistakes or room for growth, we speak that into their life. Now, again, this is an issue for specifically my generation because uh, we like words of flattery. Like we like the we like to be built up in encouragement, right? Uh, I I call it uh, I call the the Christians of my generation American Idol Christians. Okay, here's what I mean by that. Anybody ever watch American Idol? Maybe not anymore. I know it's gone down a significant number in its TV viewing, but uh, I've watched every season. Uh, as you know, I have a great affinity for many of the winners of American Idol, specifically one, Carrie Underwood. Okay, but side of the point. Um, and if you ever watch American Idol, the first few weeks of American Idol are all the auditions, right? Inevitably, there are, you know, 
tons of people who come up there thinking that they are awesome. Like, they are going to be the next Barbara Streisand or something, right? I'm coming up here to, to, to launch it, and they get up there, and they are terrible. <laughs> terrible, right? And mom's outside. They go, oh, my God, my baby's going to make it today. And then here this, this, this baby is getting embarrassed on national television because mama didn't say to her daughter, hey, listen, baby, you are talented in so many things, but singing is not one of them. <laughs> Right? Listen, at some point, we got to speak truth into people. Right? Otherwise, they're going to walk through life deceived, thinking that they are following Jesus when in fact they are not. They think they're honoring Jesus when in fact they are not. We don't need people to get on national television and embarrass us. We'd have conversations behind closed doors as a family of faith to say, listen, I love you and I'm speaking this into your life because I want the best for you. Not words of flattery, words of love and grace, but words of truth to make an impact. Thirdly, Paul shows us that disciple people, we must show them whose approval, excuse me, ultimately matters. What does Paul say in verses four to six? We didn't care about the, the, the approval of man. Why? Because I was secure in the Lord. And this, I think, is the root of a lot of issues that we see throughout Christianity. We have people, discipling people, who aren't really secure in the Lord. And so we live in this tension between, I really want the approval of God, but I also want the approval of man. And at some point, we've got to make a decision that God's approval is number one. We've got to exemplify that for people. Number four, Paul shows us that to disciple people, we must work hard for the sake of the gospel. What does Paul say he did? He labored and he toiled to not be a burden. He labored and he toiled. He worked for the opportunity to be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. He didn't want to be roped in with these traveling guys who would walk around these sophists for money. He didn't want his character to be questioned. And so he worked and he labored for the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we must exemplify for people that sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ is hard work, that it requires something of us, and that it's worth it. Even when the people, the Jews in Thessalonica kick us out, it's worth it. It's worth it to stand firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fifthly, Paul shows us that to disciple people, we must encourage and exhort those we disciple. Paul, as he's talking about his fatherly relationship within verse 11 and verse 12, he said, I exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. He's encouraging. When they do something right, we encourage it. We exhort them. And even when he left them, once he had to, to leave them, he didn't just abandon them. He continued to write them and to send people to them to encourage and exhort them so they could continue to grow. This is another issue with discipleship today. Once we convert people, we can't just leave them. Or even after we spend a few, few months with them, perhaps, we can't just leave them. We have to continue to speak into their life to encourage them, to, to build them up, to continue to, to walk the, the, the path that God has given them so they, they walk worthy of the Lord. They do not grow weary of doing good. And then finally... Paul shows us that the disciple people, we must find joy in seeing them walk in spiritual maturity. He says that you are my joy. You are my, my crown. What he's saying is that when I see people walking in the fullness of Jesus Christ, it gives encouragement to me because it lets me know that my ministry is not in vain. 
There's effectiveness. And we've got to get to that point where we're okay with those who come after us doing greater things than us. Because they are continuing the ministry of Jesus in greater ways. And certainly we see this exemplified in the life of Jesus. And I just want to close with this, maybe. Aha, here it is. Have you ever read this book? The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman. I highly recommend it. And just uh, beyond my recommendation, someone who's probably got a little more weight, there's a guy named Billy Graham who uh, speaks to this. And here's what he says. Few books have had a greater impact on the cause of world evangelization in our generation as Robert Coleman's Master Plan of Evangelism. So, you don't believe me, believe Billy, okay? Now, what I want to say is that Paul is replicating what we see in the life of Jesus, okay? He lets people get close to him. Um, And here's what Dr. Coleman writes about Jesus. He, He bases this in the verse, Matthew 28, 20, Lo, I am with you always. Having called his men, Jesus made a practice of being with them. This was the essence of his training program, just letting his disciples follow him. Amazing as it may seem, all Jesus did to teach these men his way was to draw them close to himself. He was his own school and curriculum. He asked them to come and see. And this is the challenge for us today. Such close and constant association, of course, meant that Jesus had virtually no time to call his own. Like little children clamoring for the attention of their father, the disciples were always underfoot of the master. Even the time he took to go apart to keep his personal devotions was subject to interruption as the disciples need. As the disciples need. But Jesus would have had it no other way. He wanted to be with them. They were his spiritual children. And the only way that a father can properly raise a family is to be with it. And don't you see that just evidence in the life of Paul? This kind of fatherly love for the people that he led to the Lord. And my challenge for us today is that, listen, the people that we're throwing out into the world are going to be met with tons of different circumstances, tons of different challenges. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we effectively preparing them to withstand whatever comes their way? Are we effectively allowing the the gospel of Jesus to to fully infiltrate the lives of the people that we are leading to the Lord the way that Paul did? Are we being good stewards of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we pouring our lives into people the way we see displayed throughout the book of Acts by Paul and the other apostles and certainly by the life of Jesus? So I leave that challenge with you today. Think about what are you doing with the gospel? Are you discipling anyone? Are you pouring your life into anyone? And how can you take that a level deeper so that you can say to them, follow me as I follow Christ, as Paul did? Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would take these truths and that you would challenge us with them. God, that we would invite people into our lives the way Jesus did, the way Paul did, to help them fully grow to maturity in Jesus Christ. Help us to be passionate about reaching the lost, yes, but Father, help us also to be passionate about shaping them into the image of Jesus so that they can then in turn do the exact same thing. God, what you multiplied in the book of Acts is beyond our comprehension, and yet you have given us the blueprint to make it happen once again. May we be faithful stewards of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.